Welcome to the Digital Week, a service provided by the PwC Chair in Digital Economy. My name is Michael Roseman. I'm a professor at QUT and I'm here with Monica Bradley. We are dedicated to 3.0 concepts and today we will talk about public goods 3.0. A public good is a good provided to everyone. Nobody's excluded, nobody competes. Streetlight and public defense are examples. Today we explore how the digital economy helps us on the one side, to create smarter public goods. For example, smart streetlights, allowing citizens to contribute, not just funding, but also ideas to shape these smarter public goods. Uh, second, we will talk about digital public goods. The emergence of an entire new category of public goods that only exist in the digital world and are particular provided by non-public sector providers. We talk about social media and we talk about two additional characteristics positive network effects, and then ease of use. We talk about the new skill set required to provide such digital public goods, the way we can monetize them, and we also look back into history uh, and try to explore how the theory of public goods helps us to understand future developments. Monica, this has been a big, big week. Uh, the state government launched a budget from the viewpoint of a digital economist, what is the standout feature in this budget? Oh, it was definitely a catch line, Advanced Queensland. We're back into it. We're back into the pivoting towards digital, the future. Uh, it, was a, it was a reasonably optimistic but practical uh, budget. And it gave me reason for optimism. I think particularly also coming on the back of uh, Brisbane City, our largest city here obviously issuing its statement about Brisbane 2022 and of course the, the fact this week that um, Echo Entertainment has announced a $2 billion investment, some new assets on the Brisbane water here in, in Brisbane. It gives a, there's a real sense of confidence in the market. These are big figures and I've seen the numbers of billions of dollars are spent on water and energy infrastructure, education is one big item. The space of entrepreneurship, startups, um, the figure there is much smaller. How do you assess this sort of budget item? Well, for me, it's about catalyzing. I mean, the state, we're talking about public good. I mean, really, that's the use, isn't it? Public, why do we invest? Why does government spend money? It spends money to correct um, public failures and to create a society around which um, the rest of society can flourish. So public good is important. And from the perspective of the budget, the focus that we've now provided on investment in entrepreneurship and some seed investments into funding and growing um, small businesses and to using more digital um, economy and digitization, uh, I actually think is a great sign. And around that, we can then build some better uh assets and a better collaboration in terms of money from corporates. That's an interesting item you bring up, Monica. So the notion of a public good, and from what I understand from the commentary, the government expects co-funding, that the private industry, the private sector steps up, complements the funding that has been allocated in the budget uh, to make this an even richer public good. So as you know, under the umbrella of the PwC chair in digital economy, we are dedicated to 3.0 concepts. So let's have a bit of a conversation. What is a public good 3.0? Mm, public good 3.0. So if public good is the, at its essence is the nature of um, the government using our money that they have raised through forms of taxation to invest in things that, are, that make our society a better place or correct a failure where someone might have been excluded but needs to be included, then 3.0, where would that, that could move us into the space of making classic public good assets better. I assume, you know, things like 
street lighting, electricity and water, Michael? We could use digitisation in that. That's a, that's a great idea. So let's just quickly uh, recap. Public goods typically means nobody's excluded. Yes. And those who consume the public good don't compete with each other. So maybe let's first elaborate on, on what are smarter public goods. Uh, you mentioned street lighting. What else are examples? Well, there's a number of people with, uh, we're looking at things that don't, uh, smarter public goods are things like uh, the vegetation is not cut every week because it's Joe's job on a Monday to go. If it doesn't need cutting and the temperature hasn't uh, encouraged the foliage to grow, we don't send someone there. So smarter public good is actually, if you like, using smart technology and machine learning to help position the limited public uh, spend we have on people to, to conduct tasks to make our society better, to do it smart. So there's an interesting aspect here. So public good 3.0 has got two positive effects, obviously. One is, potentially, it, it is cheaper to provide. Yes. So the, the smart light that is only on when needed uh, will cost less. And I understand that cities like Oslo save up to 30% by providing smart public good, in this case smart lighting. And, and second, as you highlighted, uh, it might provide even better experiences. Experience. And experience is an interesting public good in itself. If I experience a city that, that in it I feel more productive, healthier and safer, that obviously then in a you know, has the exemplar effect of lowering the cost of providing other services like health, education, transportation. If we're connected, I can sit in my house and conduct commerce that earns me money and contributes intellectual uh, capabilities to companies to be better from my lounge room as opposed to getting on a bus, travelling in where I might get hit by something and need police protection. So it's interesting. You, you talk about experiencing the good when you consume it. Could you also imagine experiences in, in shaping a public good? Wow, shaping public good. I guess, you know, we saw the beginnings of that with some of these new technologies like during the elections, the vote compass, where you can go online and you can answer a series of 20 questions and an evidence-based research group founded in three universities has deconstructed the policies of each of the candidates and it kind of matchmakes you to the candidate that suits how you responded. It was used... I guess in its early stages in the last couple of elections. I would expect these sorts of techniques are going to grow as a public good. So that's interesting. So features like crowdsourcing, crowd-solving, uh, crowd-debate uh, could be used by the government uh, to allow citizens to contribute to well, identifying shaping public goods. We had a perfect example at my local cafe the other mm, week. Tell me. We're actually upgrading a significant road between the downtown area of Brisbane and where I live um, slightly uh, six kilometres out of the city on the river. And this is quite a, a good neighbourhood. We have lovely coffee shops. We have beautiful uh, riverside houses. And the public good um, budget available to upgrade that, that thoroughfare to get us in and out of the city in motor vehicles is quite limited. So they're, they're doing a nice upgrade which is needed for the car space. Obviously now we're a growing city of people that want to walk and run and exercise and the river is a great place to do that. So they've now attached a separate walkway and bikeway that will sort of lead her out over beside the road. But in another neighbouring suburb over in New Farm, which is very close to our hearts and we're very competitive with, they have a beautiful freestanding um, bikeway that's really created a whole new atmosphere. You know, my, my question back to the government was, 
you know, they said, well, we couldn't afford to build that with the limited budget we have. We said, well, you didn't ask us. Maybe we could have contributed. So would the citizens of Hamilton crowdfunded additional money to put a beautiful standalone walkway runway and perhaps we could have derived some income as the citizens group from running advertising along the bountings on it or conducting events or allowing weddings to take place or run-a-thons. So it's quite interesting how the digital economy potentially allows us to create even smarter um, but already existing um, public goods, so citizens could, could contribute ideas, could contribute funding. Cameras, um, perhaps we could put more of our CCTV cameras out there, and in theory that could make us safer if people were observing that. Yep, that's a good point. So we, we see the emergence of smarter public goods, um, um, and the Internet of Things, the Internet of Everything, will give people um, public goods that go far beyond capabilities we've seen so far. Um, in addition to those physical public goods, you talk about bikeways and streetlights, uh, we also see the emergence of digital public goods. Mm. Uh, well, and we talk about this in a lot of sectors, not just in the public goods sector. We talked about education 3.0. We talked about in retail 3.0. It's the idea that the data behind the assets is very often the asset and now going to become the revenue stream in itself. The other one is, you know, could we provide grand statements like free public transport, for instance, and could the business model move from a user pays accessibility to an open accessibility with then uh, the revenue to, to operate that good coming from things like uh, advertising models or access to that very curated uh, group of people or perhaps you know follow-ons that you know it, would, it improves public safety because we knew where people are traveling and we're taking people off the roads so we could reduce roads so there's an enormous argument about uh, public transport and the good of that that's that's interesting that shows how the government in the future could also become a provider of digital public goods uh, but what I believe is also very interesting is, unlike with classical public goods, that digital public goods are often provided from, from individuals, from organizations that do not belong to the public sector. Mm. So in the classical public good conversation that is literally 100 years old, we often think about the government giving us streetlight, public defense and roads. In the world of a digital public good, it's quite different. And in fact, most digital public goods come from non-government providers. Uh, Facebook? Facebook is one example. So a digital public good would be any solution you can access without being excluded, um, without any uh, big entry barrier. So there's typically no contract you sign, you quickly accept the terms and conditions, and you're in business. Um, there's no competition between you and other users. Uh, cloud computing allows us to scale up quickly. Um, but there are two more features to, to digital public goods. Um, first of all, they're incredibly easy to use. Oh, intuitive. You, you go and you can use Google Maps, LinkedIn, YouTube, Pinterest. So they're incredibly intuitive, which is hard to design, but allows the user base to engage. So there's no intellectual exclusion. You don't have to be a trained user like in a classical ERP system. Um, so like uh, matchmake me and my family for two hours on a Sunday afternoon to an entertainment activity in the city. Correct. And that must be something as a digital public good that is, that is on standby, you're not excluded, you don't compete, and you immediately um, could be in business. And the fourth and maybe most exciting feature is what we call positive network effects. Wow, that sounds just way above my pay grade. Positive network effects. So that means simply that the product, the digital public good, gets better with every new user. Ah, yes. We see that a lot in um, what we look, when we're looking at commercial operations, obviously. Correct. And it's interesting that classical public goods often get, get worse. So you want a traffic jam on a road, mm -hmm. you can't see the firework. means the more users I've got, uh, 
probably the, the quality of the public good deteriorates, while in the world of a digital public good, we see the opposite effect. Mm-hmm. That every new user who either contributes a video or rates a video makes YouTube better, makes LinkedIn better, makes Pinterest better. Mm. That's very, very um, counterintuitive for organizations who provide private goods. Because your ordinary bank, university, or insurance company typically doesn't get better with every new consumer. And they work on this scarcity theory of competition. Correct. I'm competing against other like things rather than we're collaborating. So... I'm guessing in the in the digital public good space, we may see some unusual collaborations as well. Most definitely, most definitely. And what we also see in this space, we have to think uh, in terms of new ways, and you alluded to this, how we actually monetize all of this. Mm-hmm. So if I give away a product for free, how do I actually make money? And for the government, that's a different conversation than to a private organization that ultimately is still... Uh, uh, driven by, by shareholder value and a very monetary profit interest. So here's a constraint-based innovation exercise challenge for you, Michael. Could we run a successful society with zero taxation? That's a big one. Um, that would require a, a very creative business model, I think, for the government. Uh, would require enter a new... Um... I don't expect you to solve it today, Michael. <laughs> Let's throw it out there, because to me, is that the thinking that the, the PwC chair in the digital economy is about? How do we take that step change and really think, I guess, with some of the frames of 20 and 30 years down the track, and then come back to, okay, some more realistic, you know, one, two-year strategies that could be implemented? Absolutely. So, ultimately, we don't say uh, it costs nothing to provide a public good. So, public transport still requires infrastructure. Uh, the question is just, where does the money come from? And instead of the, the passenger, it could come from anywhere. Yeah, and the business model of running the business of government um, will be profoundly changed as all the business models are being disrupted by the same as we're experiencing in other sectors. Absolutely. So, so the magic of someone who creates a digital public good, and that's a conversation we have right now in the very first week of our semester with our new um, generation of IT students, is how do I actually create um, a long-lasting uh, digital public good? So I have to think about alternative streams of revenue, but also about different types of capital. It's typically not the, the, the digital solution as such, the app that you can see, but it's a social capital that you create. Let's take an example like Strava. Mm-hmm. So Strava is maybe the most popular app used for cyclists on this planet. Mm-hmm. Now, the app is something a lot of individuals could build very quickly, but it's the internet of cyclists, the millions and millions of cyclists who are connected and compare each other's performance that makes up the capital. So you go away from from physical or digital assets to social capital. So could you imagine, for instance, de-anonymized health data being aggregated together and this could become a valuable source of data that, that might be able to be monetized? Absolutely. So, so data, open data, is definitely a very essential digital public good. So digital public goods could be the open data that I get from a government. It could be the app, the social media platform. So anything that can be consumed intuitively, easy, uh, data probably doesn't increase in value as exponentially uh, like some of the apps, uh, but still has got all the features of a digital public good. In terms of the disruptive effects, it means, of course, for those who tend to make um, money out of those goods, education, health, um, the emergence of a digital public good is a, is a severe threat to existing revenue base. 
Mm. So, okay. so what might be a job then in this new government 3.0 public good? So I'm not sure if we will see the, the design of a digital public good as a job description, but we definitely see the, the design abilities, the, the skills of designing digital public good increasingly in job descriptions. So to give you an example, um, years ago we would focus on how to program or how to configure an ERP system. Uh, in these days, our students want to hear, how do I craft a digital public good? And the things we talked about, uh, for example, scalability, positive network effects, or ease of use, sound simple, but actually quite tricky when it comes to the actual design. Okay. So these are big, big challenges. And, and we are hopeful that this generation of new talent will take enter new digital public goods um, into the future digital economy. Mm, exciting times. Also, it plays into my space that I spend some time with, which is a social enterprise, where we're crafting very new business models, collaborating between not-for-profits, government, and uh, corporates to create uh, public social capital. But, you know, Michael, I'm guessing we're coming to the end of our public good 3.0, but, you know, give us an example of where, where could we see some of this digitization being put to use so that we, at least today we can see how our investment as taxpayers in government public good is being spent. So our mind could, of course, go wild. And I recently read a book called The Circle, where one idea was that politicians, for example, would get a sort of GoPro and would live a very transparent life, meaning the digital public good here is that, that nobody is excluded from the sort of communications and professional interactions a politician has. Had. Wow. Coming on this week's uh, events in uh, where the Treasury and uh, when people have been looking at spending, that would be interesting because there would be no, there is no, you know, waiting for the FIO to come out. We would purely be able to see where people are, how people are travelling to different events and how they're consuming their time. I'm interested in, though, the dialogues that take place. You know, really, that's a very big step that we would freely be able to speak and hold meetings as, as senior levels of state uh, with, you know, video of audience or my followers following me. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in many dialogues, maybe not those of our politicians. So um, we look at the future, but what we just talked about... Do you think we could sell a Michael GoPro? Yeah, <laughs> we could, but I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want that. Well, digital public goods uh, mean, mean transparency, and I think we have to be very careful here mm-hmm. where, where the public transparency meets the private transparency. Mm-hmm. So I think what we just elaborated was a bit futuristic and maybe unrealistic, uh, but digital public goods most definitely will increase the, the transparency within our society. Uh, but hopefully not uh, take us to to the um, living rooms of every single individual. And it does, it fits very closely with the themes that are intertwined with um, identity and identity management and privacy, which of course, you know, are in every business proposition that we look at with the PwC chair in the digital economy. Absolutely. And and maybe next week we talk about digital identity where we've got a stream of activities coming up. Uh, but, but to close this off, we look forward into the future what we just talked about reminds me to a very old uh, movie, one of my favorites, The Truman Show. So Truman was one individual that lived already an incredibly transparent life. Uh, so being reminded did of... Did he not do the same thing over and over again? He did, yes. I'm hoping the digital Poor world does not do that to it us. It does we, we certainly don't live those lives. No, every life seems to be totally different <laughs> in our physical, in our digital world. So, so with this, uh, Monica, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening and good night. Um, goodbye, Michael. See you next week.